Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. outside. I got snow in my shoe. You know, it's like to teach with one cold, wet foot. Anyway, um, hey, one thing I messed up on the listening guide this week. So if you look on there, that version link that's there, I messed that up. So that's on me. Uh, those of you online, uh, the one that's on the screen here, the one that's on your uh, screen should be right. So uh, if you need to change that, if you like to follow along with the version on your uh, phone or iPad, uh, make sure you use the one on the screen, not the one that's on the, uh, the listening guide there. So anybody watch the Olympics? They're finally done here. But anybody watch? I don't think the viewership was real high this time around. We, uh, we, we don't have cable, so we, don't really, we didn't really watch them, but we, uh, we'd get on YouTube and kind of watch highlights with the kids and just kind of you know, see what was going on. So I, I learned about my son that he likes, uh, he really likes crash video highlight reels, you know, where they just like show all the people on luge that crash and slide down the thing, which if you know my son, that's not a big surprise. The other one, though, that was a little more of a surprise was he really got into curling. Yeah, that one where they slide the rocks down the ice and try to like try to like bring him in on a little, he loved it. So like we started, like, nobody understands what is, how, nobody knows what curling is outside of Canada and Minnesota. So uh, we started looking up more videos and kind of trying to figure out like, what are the rules where you throw rocks down the ice? And I hit on, I stumbled on an interesting thing. Did you know that scientists don't understand curling? Like, it seems pretty simple, right? You throw rocks down ice. But apparently the way they spin the rocks, um, it, they go the wrong direction. So like everything else in the world, when you spin it, it goes this way, and I'm probably getting this wrong, but the, they go the opposite way. And they don't understand scientists, like they've got some ideas, but they truthfully don't understand why curling rocks operate the way they do, which makes this question that we're going to look at today in this assertion um, at least a little more dubious to me. And, and that is, is that science has disproved Christianity. Richard Dawkins said this, he said, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. So in other words, when he looks at it through the lens of, of his science, he says, when I look at it, it looks exactly the way I would expect. No bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. You know, I am, I am truly thankful for science. Um, I am thankful for all of this brought us. Uh, I'm fascinated by all the sciences. Every AP class I took in, in high school were all science classes. I'll read on just about any scientific discovery, any subject that's out there. But with that said, science, like all good things, including steak, which is hard for me to say, but all good things, if you take them too far, can actually become a problem, right? 
I believe a lot of people have turned science into something that is really not, and therefore they've leveraged it into misapplication. Now, today is a bit different of a lesson than honestly just about any I've done in the last 20 years. It was kind of an interesting one to write. The reason why is because normally, you know, we would take and uh, we would take a problem or we would take a question and we would go back to scripture and we'd go, okay, what does God speak into that thing and how should we think about it? How should we have a biblical worldview about it? Now, this one's a little bit different. This assertion that science has disproved Christianity or disproved God isn't something we're going to be able to come to a good answer with if we just throw Bible verses at it. Because this isn't a Bible against science argument. What this is, is it's a, it's a, it's, it's a false conclusion coming out of a broken logic. So today, I'm just going to warn you up front, because some of you are going to look and go, wow, this looks a little different. This outline looks a little different. There's a lot of quotes in there and very few Bible verses. But again, part of that is because this is, this is actually not a question that the Bible is going to speak into and prove that science is wrong, actually, I think what we're going to find is the very definitions of science. The basic idea of what it is is going to show that this is a logical fallacy. And it leads me kind of to a counter question because I think the question we're starting off with is a little wrong. I, I think this is a better question to ask, and that is, does our popular culture misunderstand and misapply science? And today I want to explore that question, and in doing so, I think it's going to give us an answer to our initial one. But first, let's just go back. Let's take a look at what science is. We'll go back to a a basic definition of science. Um, This is from the Cambridge Dictionary. Um, It says, the knowledge from the careful study of the structure and behavior of the physical world, especially by watching and measuring, doing experiments, and, and the development of theories to describe the results of these activities. This is probably pretty close to the basic definition of science you learned in like fourth grade, right? Science is a systematic way to investigate the world around us and then pass on what we learn. It is a tool. That's what it's there for. Science is about coming up with a hypothesis and then using carefully formulated sets of uh, of methodologies to test that measurable ways. Then other people, they do the same thing. They test your results and theories. Now, with that said, let me switch school subjects for a minute. Do you remember the big questions out of, uh, out of your English class and again in like third, fourth grade? Remember when they were teaching you how to write and they said that writing ought to answer some basic questions? You guys remember those questions, right? The, the who, what, when, where, and then I always put in the how because that's the only one I ever really carried, cared about all that much. Science has some implicit limitations, all right, so science can only actually answer some of those questions. It can only answer the, the what, the when, the where, and the how. Those are the only ones it's designed to, to, to operate to try to answer. Science can't answer the other questions. The scientific method, which is the foundation for science as we know, it, it can't answer or come to conclusions on the who, the who behind, behind it all, the why behind it all. Science isn't prepared to be able to, to come up with an answer to that. That's not what it was ever designed for. It's for the material world. That's what science investigates. Albert Einstein said this, it's often been said, and certainly not without justification, that the man of science is a poor philosopher. 
In looking for a new foundation, he must try to make clear in his own mind just how far the concepts which he uses are justified in our necessities. What he's talking about there is science has some limits to it. Sir Peter Medawar was a, a well-known biologist, a well-known scientific author. Matter, matter of fact, uh, the, uh, Richard Dawkins, really well-known atheist, uh, speaks a lot about how the fact there is no God, uh, science disproves it. He called him the wittiest of all scientific writers. This is out of a, uh, a pamphlet that, that Medawar wrote in 1979 called Advice to a Young Scientist. He wrote this. There's no quicker way for a scientist to bring discredit upon himself and upon his profession than roundly to declare, particularly when no declaration of any kind is called for, that science knows or soon will know the answers to all questions worth asking. And that questions which do not admit a scientific answer in some way non-questions or pseudo-questions that only simpletons ask and only the gullible profess to be able to answer. The existence of a limit to science is, however, made clear by its inability to answer childlike elementary questions having to do with first and last things. Questions such as, how did everything begin? What, what are we all here for? What's the point of living? This isn't an attack on science or the scientific method, man. I am so thankful that God has given us minds to comprehend a systematic way to process the world, to, to be able to really appreciate nature and the creation that he's made. I'm so thankful for that. I'm just making the point that any honest scientist will, that science has some inherent limitations to it. Why? Because it's, first and foremost, it's limited to things that can be measured. Some stuff, it's real hard to measure, right? I love you. How much? Right? Answer that question for your spouse. That wide? It's not very much. Depends on how long your arms are, right? You know, it's also limited by our ability to, to perceive and comprehend and imagine, some people can, can perceive things farther than I can. Some people can imagine farther out than I can. And so, therefore, science is always limited by that stuff, too. Yeah. And that's why, by the way, science is always in a constant state of revision. Contrary to, to popular sentiment today, I think something a lot of people assume, the scientific method is not the only way to reliably know something. John Lennox said this, he said, uh, making science the only avenue to truth is very dangerous and logically absurd. If I say that science is the only way to truth, well, that's not a statement of science, that's a statement of my own belief. In other words, that, that's not really science, that's my own worldview speaking in from kind of my own starting point. I'm inserting my own stuff in there. You know, because science has made such amazing progress in certain fields like medicine and technology, some people claim that the scientific method uh, or empirical verification is the only way to reliable knowledge. There's a guy named Sir John Polkinghorn. What a great name, right? Where do you think he's from? He's English. He's a, a Cambridge physicist. He's also, by the way, an Anglican priest. And he does, he, he does a lot of writing and speaking on this subject we're talking about today. And uh, he, he talks about, he kind of gives a, a, a thought analogy here. He says, imagine somebody coming up, and of course, because he's English, he wants to talk about tea, right? So he says, imagine I walk into your house and there's a, a kettle that's on the stove and it's boiling water, and I came in and you ask, okay, why is water boiling in that kettle? 
There's two people that are in the room. And one of them answers, well, because there's, there's burning gas and it's coming up through the flame and it's being lit and it has X number of BTUs and those BTUs are being transferred into, into that metal kettle and that metal kettle then, you know, it has certain, it has certain properties that allow that, that heat then to transfer into the water and, it, and they go through that explanation, right? He's talking about mechanical forces. Another person looks and says, well, I wanted tea. Which one's Right? Which one's right? They're both right, right? They're just talking about it from two different perspectives. They're looking at two different sets of knowledge that are there. One person's asking like the, the, the why behind it, right? And science isn't ready to answer the why. All science can answer is the how. See, science involves a method that's useful to investigate large chunks of reality, but it's not the only way to know truth. Human life is of great value. That's true. How much? Prove it scientifically. This is where we start breaking down a little bit. We talked about that a few weeks ago and we talked about morality, right? We talked about how, how you come to an understanding of morality. It's wrong to live for selfish greed. That's true. That's moral truth. Again, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but science can't determine that. A society that's unable to recognize the existence of moral truth, man, it is headed for some real serious problems. The belief that science is the only method for discovering truth is called scientism. And there's some people who don't like that word, um, but honestly, it's, it's a valid word. Now, I, I'll just tell you for any students that are in here, do not use Wikipedia when you're writing like, when you're writing any, any, any papers for school. With that said, I'm gonna use Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> It was actually a really well-cited and uh, fairly reasoned definition for scientism here. So it was just the best one I could find that was simple. All right, this is how it defines scientism. The, the, the improper usage of science or scientific claims, and this usage applies equally in contexts where science might not apply, such as when the topic is perceived as beyond the scope of scientific inquiry, and in contexts where there's insufficient empirical evidence to justify a scientific conclusion. It includes an excessive deference to the claims of science or an uncritical eagerness to accept any result described as scientific. Scientism, and, and this is why I know that it's a real word, um, you can turn just about anything into its own religion. Is that fair? Scientism is science as religion. Do you notice that in our culture today, what is the immediate thing that we go to anytime there's anything that we see that's a little bit, it just doesn't feel right, we don't like it, it's uncomfortable, what do we think should fix it? Science, right? It's gotta be some scientist in some lab somewhere, like we're convinced they got the answer to everything. If I feel bad, science should have a cure and they should have had it yesterday. If a disaster occurs, science should be able to fix that disaster, it should never happen again. I know this is dangerous territory, but can we, can we talk about the phrase follow the science for just a minute? You know, it's been interesting, I, I, I've been noticing since about January, it's been kind of quiet, but even in some very liberal publications, science writers and professionals are raising a quiet alarm about that phrase and the way it's been used because it's dangerous. 
If we elevate the methodology of science, which is limited only to the material, above all other forms of truth, then there's some real consequences that come out of that, starting with the value of, of existence and the value of life. Some of you are old enough to remember Carl Sagan. Remember the, the science shows? Carl Sagan had that narration. He had the big, you know, he had all the, the, the big pictures of the universe that would pop up. He, uh, in one of those, those episodes, he, uh, he, he spoke this. We find that we live, and of course there's like stars in the background, so you gotta imagine this, right? You can picture it with me, do the movie thing. We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. Notice there's all these really loaded words in there, insignificant, humdrum, lost, tucked away, forgotten, Those aren't scientific terms. Those are terms that are weighted with meaning when we put them in a context of a narration like that, right? The idea of statements like that is that somehow science, by showing us how immense the size, immense the age of the universe is, has shown that we're we're these tiny little human beings that don't have unique dignity or value or worth in ways that faith is taught. There's some profound implications when science becomes our philosophy. In some areas of knowledge and truth, science is limited, again, by its own methodology, by its purpose and by its scope. So maybe I can just simply put it this way. Science is limited to and designed to investigate nature. That's what it's for. Um, do you know there's science historians? Like they're historians, all they do is look back at science and how it's evolved, how it's changed, that kind of stuff. So there's a guy named Hans Halverson, which again, another great name, right? He, he went back and he looked and he, he proposes that the scientific method as we know it didn't arise out of atheism, but from scientists who believed that our universe was designed and created by God according to a blueprint that can be discerned by rational creatures like ourselves. So in other words, they looked around and said, God is a God of order, and because he's a God of order and we're rational creatures, we can discover how how God did certain things, and that gives us a new appreciation for him and for creation. Science is designed as a way to understand the natural world. Now, we're getting ready to go back to that original statement, has science disproved Christianity? Science is designed to investigate the natural world. Do the beliefs of Christianity fall within that purview? Well, how about the God we worship? I would say that the God we worship, the God that uh, that we worship, how he created, how he often works, those are, he is supernatural. That is, he's above nature. So supernatural, I I know there was the TV show, uh, but the, the, the basic definition of supernatural is that it is outside or above nature. Right, so it's outside the purview of nature. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning, the word already existed. So creation hadn't happened yet. Therefore, God is what? He is outside of the creation, right? The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. So you can't have God be part of nature if God is outside of nature, right? Can't create what you are. And nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. God is outside of and above nature. It's one of the basic tenets of Christianity. Also, by the way, a basic tenet of all the monotheisms, right? All of Judaism, 
Islam. I mean, we all believe that one. The foundation for Christianity is what? The sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus, right? There is no version of real Christianity that doesn't believe that Jesus didn't die and was raised again. I mean, everything really hinges on that belief. And let me just say, I don't know about you, I've done a lot of funerals, I've spent a lot of time in graveyards. Um, I won't tell you all those stories. But uh, like, I've never seen anybody actually come back to life. That is outside of the way things naturally work, correct? Hebrews 13, 20 through 21, may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd and of the sheep and ratified eternal covenant with his blood may equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ, which by the way is a power where if, if Jesus has risen again and he's not here anymore, again, basic tenet of Christianity, then he is outside of nature. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is supernatural in nature. Galatians 5, 22, 23, and verse 25. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For some of you, it will be supernatural for you to gain some of those things in large degrees. Nobody elbow anybody else. There's no law against these things. Look at what it says in 25. Since we're living by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. In other words, we believe the Holy Spirit ought to be leading us in everything. And the Holy Spirit is not part of this natural world. Has science disproven the existence of God or Christianity as a whole? It's not a yes or no question because science isn't prepared to make that determination. It's not what it's there for. These are areas where science can't investigate and science and scientists are therefore unqualified to make conclusions or judgments. So, This is the question that comes into my mind then. If science isn't qualified to make judgments on this, on the existence of God, whether Christianity is ultimately true or false, then why is this idea that science has disproven the existence of God and Christianity so popular? Why is the belief that, why, why? And to me, it's a great question. I don't believe that Christianity and science are at odds. We may make each other uncomfortable at times. We may have some things we need to work out. But we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't hate, we shouldn't be at war with science. Why? Because at the end of the day, again, science is just a tool that was designed to, to basically experience God's creation on a, on a different, different level. Again, on contrary, it's people who believe in a God who lovingly designed a, a creation that's only natural were drawn to the natural world and find beauty and awe in its design. Look at Romans 1.20. Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. Man, if you've ever, if you've ever stood looking at a mountain out in Colorado... We're sat on a beach, quiet, it's watching the waves crash in. It's real hard to think that this all was just an accident and that we're in control and that we can make sense of it all. Why? Well, that's what Romans is speaking to. Science and the scientific method, they aren't the issue here. 
Again, I would say scientism is. And in a general way, that's also described in Romans 1. It says that people traded the worship of God for the worship of his creation. Robert Lewinson was a highly regarded American evolutionary biologist. He was a mathematician, geneticist, social commentator. He once wrote this. He said, it's not the methods and institution of science somehow compel us to accept material explanations of the phenomenal world. On the contrary, we're forced by our a priori adherence to material causes. In other words, when we look at things, I have, I have a starting point that is this is the material world is all that's here. And so therefore, I'm not going to come to any conclusion that believes anything less. He says, an a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation, a set of concepts that produce material explanations. So in other words, I believe that the material is all that's here and therefore my science, that's all it's going to find. No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying the uninitiated, moreover that materialism is an absolute for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. And I don't provide that quote as some kind of mocking gotcha moment. I really do. I actually appreciate that he was being honest with where he started from. Uh, I, I believe he's more honest than most. I have great respect for that. Humanism and materialism need God to not exist or to be needed. Stephen Hawking in his book, uh, The Grand Design, wrote, spontaneous creation is the reason there's something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. It's not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. Now what's interesting is, go ask a scientist where things started, and they'll say, well, they'll go back to the universe and the Big Bang, and okay, so what started that? Nobody has an answer. See, he's starting from a point of his own faith. See, whether they admit it or not, people who hold that science has brought down God and Christianity have another starting point. Science isn't informing that belief. Science isn't informing Stephen Hawking's belief that, that, that there was nothing, there was nothing before. Because we don't know that by science. Can't test it yet. There's an underlying philosophy or religion that they've brought into it. And that, see, that's what's really at odds with Christianity. That's what we're struggling with here. Ironically, a lot of champions of science hate religious fundamentalism and they've created their own version. And just like all religions and philosophies, they start with some base beliefs founded on faith. As we start to wrap this up, let me speak to a few different people who I anticipate may be here this weekend. First, uh, the person who wants more. Some of you are mad because we're stopping here and because we didn't talk about some very specific things about science and about scripture and about the Bible that are kind of your things that you're really interested in. I'll just tell you, one of the hard things about writing this lesson is there's a million different ways I could have gone. And honestly, this should probably be about 15 hours long with somebody speaking way smarter than me. Yeah. For those of you who want to dig deeper into this, this first foundational conversation that we've been having, there is an amazing amount of resources that are out there. With, go, go investigate. Let me just say this. Be very discerning in how you investigate. Do it smart because there's a lot of nonsense out there too. 
I, I will recommend one in particular. It's a talk with John Lennox. You can find it on YouTube on the Socrates in the City channel. Uh, you should have the uh, you should have the. Um, the links there in your listening guide. Those of you online, if you go to that Uversion link, you should be able to find that in there. Um, it's a two-hour, con- it is a phenomenal conversation. That man is a genius. I had to watch sections over and over and over again just to really wrap my head around where he was going. Really worth the time to go watch that. So go search more. If you're really interested in this, this is an important subject. There are a lot of people asking this question. Man, go do the research. Just do it with a a high level of discernment. For the person who wonders if an intelligent person could possibly believe in God. And that person's going to be here this weekend too. Let me just lovingly and challenge you first with the reality. That is an incredibly arrogant thing to believe. Roger Bacon, William Ockham, They laid the empirical and methodological foundations for the scientific method. Both of them were Franciscan friars. That's actually part of what led them to look for it. Francis Bacon popularized the work. Guess what? He was a believer as well. Galileo, while I know everybody loves to like lift him up and say, the church persecuted him in the name of science. Yeah, the Catholic church did persecute him and he still died a believer. Matter of fact, the reason he held to his beliefs was because he looked at scripture and he said, you know what, I believe that this, this this concept that he had, this hypothesis, this theory that he had, it actually fits with scripture better than what the Catholic Church is teaching. Gregor Mendel, father of genetics, also a Catholic friar. Rodney Stark, who's at Baylor University, did a study on this. He went back to 17th century Europe, which is really where the scientific method really kind of begins, where it blossoms, where the science really gets going the way we know it. Out of the 52 leading scientists, they did a study about their thoughts and about their writing. 62% of them were what what he called devout believers. 34% of them were conventionally religious. He said only two out of the 52 he looked at were actually religious skeptics. I'll just tell you personally, there are a massive number of scientists today, many of whom in esteemed positions who are believers, and I've gotten to meet some of them. Um, One of the churches I pastored in Florida was over on the east coast of Florida. We were just below NASA. And uh, that church was filled with, half of it were the biggest rednecks you've ever met in your entire life who like call me in the middle of the night and they got a bass boat stuck in a tree. True story. And The other were people who had like multiple doctoral degrees and were sending things into space. I I had a small group in Cocoa Beach full of a bunch of just brilliant scientists. I'll just tell you, they're there. They're out there, they're believers. They believe in a God who created and at the same time they love science with everything in them. Ian Hutchinson, a plasma physicist at MIT, he writes, my own conviction of the reality of God grew in the context of a wonder and fascination with the amazing consistency and complexity of the natural world and seeing nature as the creation of a wise and loving God for me makes sense of science in a profound and intellectually satisfying way. Going back to John Lennox in that that video that I I referenced earlier, he states uh, this, I love this, One of the most powerful evidences to my mind that there's an eternal mind behind the universe is, first of all, that we can do science, that we can do it in the language of mathematics, that we have language that we can use. We can use abstract concepts that are not material to describe things that are physical. And all of that points in one direction, and one direction only, and it's this. In the beginning was the word, not the particles. 
Man, the list of scientists you can find is long, and it includes living Nobel Prize winners and scientists from just about every discipline you can possibly think of. To that point, there are a number of prestigious universities, Harvard and Oxford included in them, that actually have a chair of science and religion. So they think that apparently the two can operate together. To say or believe that rational, intelligent people couldn't possibly believe in the God of the Bible, his design of the universe, or his miraculous movement in the world is to make a really wide and sweeping judgment on a lot of people who are smarter than both of us, probably put together. Those of you struggling with, with what to believe, I just tell you my goal today isn't to, to convince you. It's just to kind of humbly and lovingly challenge and provide some opportunity to really look at this subject because it doesn't get talked about much. This all comes down to one thing on both sides, and I just want to encourage you not to shrink back from it or be scared of it, and that is this. Everybody starts from a position of faith. Everybody. Look for honesty in that. I'll be perfectly open about my starting bias, and I have one. Based on everything, and I've seen everything, I've experienced everything I've studied, you know, everything I believe that this world, my life, your life, it's not an accident. Man, there's a creator, and because of that, there's purpose to this life and a value to each one of us and and to everything we know and see. Scientists also have their foundations of faith. By the way, do you know that we don't actually know what gravity is? We don't understand gravity. I mean, I definitely don't understand gravity, but I mean, really smart people don't understand gravity. Richard Panic says we know what its effects are. We can give the name gravity the cause of those effects, but we don't know the cause of that cause. Just for space, I didn't include this next one, but it's one of my favorites. Paul Sutter's an astrophysicist. He says, what is the ultimate resolution? We know we live in a quantum world, but we can't figure out a way to describe gravity without swearing. And that's infinitely annoying. You know, we don't know what energy is. Louis Del Monte is a physicist. He says, we scientists talk about energy. We derive equations with energy mathematically expressed in the equation as though we understand energy. The, the fact is we do not. It's an indirectly observed quantity. We infer its existence. There's a level of faith that comes in. There's a million more. I don't believe in the God of Scripture or Jesus as a Savior just because of blind faith. It's because my experience lines up with Scripture, with the truth that I see there. Do you know that's also the, the rationale for the earliest Christians? Look at 1 John 1, 1 through 4. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we had heard and seen. See, this kind of goes back to a scientific methodology, right? We experienced it. We tested it. We looked at it. We heard him. We saw him. We believe because of that, not just because he said. We saw him with our own eyes, touched him with our own hands. He's the word of life. This one whose life itself was revealed to us and we've seen him and now we testify and proclaim to you. He is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father that he was revealed to us and we proclaim to you that we ourselves have actually seen and heard so you may have fellowship with us. Do you know at the time, those were testable things. You could go back. When when this was written, you could still go back and go, hey, your great uncle Harry, did he actually have his leg grow back? Like, was he the lame guy who got lowered down in? He was able to jump up and run around? You could go test that out. You could go check that. It's one of the reasons we believe in those writings. They made some extraordinary claims, and they were testable. 
God has never called us to blind faith, and my encouragement to you is just simply look for those starting points, test this all the best that you can with as much honesty and integrity as you can muster, and you're gonna have to find, you're gonna have to find some peace with the fact that everybody has faith in something, and that's their starting point. Last one, real quick, the person wondering why we're having this conversation to begin with. Why are we doing this in church, right? I mean, we, we could be exegeting 1 Peter 3.19, which is a fascinating one. Look, these conversations help us to fulfill two things that God has called us to. I would say two of the primary things. First, to discover new ways to worship him. Hey, I just tell you, don't be afraid of science, man. Appreciate science. Use it. Again, the earliest guys who came up with the scientific method, it was so they could worship God on a different level in a different way. But the second thing, even more so, we're having these conversations. Tony and I are going through these things because there are a lot of people who are struggling with this stuff and they've bought into simple answers, stuff that they've just heard, not stuff that they've really looked at. And you need to have answers for them. And Jesus has called us to be better equipped to reach and train up new disciples. And so it's worth having conversations like this. We love you. And the reason we're going through this is so you can love other people in that way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. Thank you for loving us. I thank you for giving us Jesus. I thank you for giving us a way to be able to appreciate this creation that you designed and to be able to experience it in a different way. And Father, I just simply pray that you will, um, Father, you meet us where we are. For somebody who has doubts, man, I, I love in scripture the father who looks at Jesus and says, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Father, for those of us who have doubts, you've never beaten anybody up for doubts. You just simply ask us to be honest. And so I just pray that you give us honesty, break down any walls that are in our minds or our hearts, and Father, help us just to seek you. And Father, for those of us who know you, I pray that every day we learn something more, both to be able to, to, to worship you better, but also to, to better disciple the people that you put around us. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.